the name Emmanuel. It means God with us. And it was declared by the prophet Isaiah as he foretold what was going to happen. And then it was told to Joseph by the angel that you're going to have a son. And he's the son of the Most High. And you will name him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, by definition, that means that God has really come down to be with his creation. Just, just take that fact in for a second. It seems uh, far-fetched to the skeptic. It seems overwhelming to the believer that God would come down, that he would reside among his creation. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a metaphor. It's not a, a, a pipe dream. It is reality. Because that name the choir just sang so many times, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. God came to be with us. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, the first question that came to my mind, and I've been saved a long time, so I wasn't being skeptical, but it's just a thought that crossed my mind. Why would God do that? Why would God intervene in creation? Why would God come and be part of this? Why would he, why would he come here? And there had to be a reason, right? God's got many things on his plate, so to speak. He's got other things he could do other than come down to earth. But there had to be a reason why he came. He couldn't have just been bored. He couldn't have been lonely because he's God. If he's bored or lonely, if he's dependent on us uh, to, to exist, then he's not God. God's sufficient in himself. By definition, he doesn't need anybody. So it couldn't be that God was bored or lonely. It couldn't be that he came to check out what was going on in the universe, like, hey, I created that earth. I wonder what's going on over there. He's omniscient, so he doesn't need uh, information. He knows all information. And if he's not omniscient, then he's not God, and the discussion's done. So he couldn't have been bored. He couldn't have been lonely. He couldn't have been clueless about what was happening. He might have come to show his power. He might have come to show his authority. He might have even come to punish sin. But if God had done something that significant and had uh, cataclysmically worldwide destroyed the earth like he did with the flood uh, to, to show his authority and to punish sin, we'd have a record of that, but we don't. So if he's not bored and he's not lonely and he doesn't uh, need to know what's going on and he didn't come to, to flex his muscles and he didn't come to destroy the earth because of sin then why did he come? Well, the only reason that I can come up with is that we needed him to come. We needed him to come. There was some deficiency on our part. There was some need on our part that, that we needed him to be here. We didn't ask for it. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for Dungali. So it's not like people were begging for Christ to come. For 400 years, there was silence between heaven and earth. And it wasn't like people were crying out to God saying, please come be with us. The, the emotional and spiritual attitude of the earth when Jesus came that night was flat. There was nothing vibrant happening spiritually. There was nothing taking place where God would have said, hey, that catches my attention. I better go down there. There was no cry for God. There was no interest in God. Very few people were still serving the Lord. And, and in the darkness of that, in the, in the spiritual void, God said, I'm coming. 
I'm coming to earth. And I'm coming because you need me to come. Now we, what we do know is the fact that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And that proves that God isn't some distant deity who is disinterested in us. We also know that by Jesus coming, that God isn't some cruel, demanding dictator who has no mercy toward mankind because Jesus certainly would not have come the way that he came if that was true. So what do we read into this? What do we read into what we saw with the children uh, depicting this morning? What do, we, what do we read into the choir song, Emmanuel, Emmanuel? What do we read into this text that we're going to look at in a moment? Well, we read that God came because he cares about us. And we read that that fourth reason is the right reason. We needed him. It's the only explanation that's logical. If you look at any reason why God would have come, the only one that makes any sense is that God is loving and merciful and gracious. And he chose to intervene into human history in order to save us from sin. Now that's the message from the night in Bethlehem, and it's here in Luke 2. So if you haven't already turned, take your Bibles and turn back there again. I hope you spent some time, as we discussed last week, memorizing this text with your family this week. We've read and studied this text many, many times, but as with all of Scripture, the Spirit always has something fresh that He wants to teach us. Whether it's a spiritual principle, whether it's a word of conviction or encouragement, or whether it's an application. So when you study the Bible, don't stop until you know the Spirit's spoken to you. So many times we, we crank out our, our study just to get through the time and make sure that we got some time in the Word, which is wonderful. But we need to continue to dig until the Spirit teaches us that nugget of truth that we need to know. Now we've been studying the details of the count. By, I hope by this point it's familiar to you. And we looked at how it aligns with some of the theology of the Christmas carols. So Two weeks ago, we looked at the significance of the manger and the strips of cloth and how they pointed to the cross and pointed to the empty tomb. And then last week, we saw that the lack of room in the inn uh, is indicative of the reaction that many people have in rejecting Jesus um, instead of receiving him as a Savior. This week, uh, I'd like to look at the concept of light in the text and how it relates to what the angels say to the shepherds uh, as they come showing the glory of God all around them. And as we said as, at the outset of these studies, nothing in the account is accidental. There's no piece of information, there's no detail that, that is incidental, that's by accident, that, that doesn't really apply. Everything that's here is important to the text, and everything has a deeper spiritual meaning that communicates why Jesus came. The fact that Jesus was born at night, the fact that it wasn't 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 9 o'clock in the morning, the text says that he was born at night and that his birth was announced with a bright light as the angels came uh, to tell the shepherds what was going on. Really gives us a clear picture of the purpose of the incarnation. So let's look at the text again. Let's start at the moment that Jesus is born in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. And uh, we're going to read down to verse 14. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, as I'm studying this text this week, and as you study the text, I hope you're, you're asking questions of it, because that's the best way to interact with it. It, it, it hit me uh, like it hasn't before of what it would have been like to see the glory of the Lord around the angel. What did that look like? Now, we've seen Christmas cards. We've seen pictures. We've seen depictions. In fact, Julie and I were looking for slides uh, for, the, for the play, and we're looking at all the slides of the angels and, and how that's been depicted in art. So, so we know it was bright. We know it was magnificent. We know it was shocking uh, to the shepherds because they're out in the field kind of sleepily watching the flocks and, and kind of laying back. No expectation that something significant's about to happen. It, it had to be a dark night because if there had been a bright full moon, that would have kind of detracted from the, the, from the appearance of the angels. So we have to know it's a dark night. It's a quiet night. There's nothing really going on. The shepherds are doing their job. They're out in the fields of Judea, and it's just your average evening. And all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shines, and, and the, the angel appears, and it's, it's so shocking and so uh, evocative that it says in the text that, that when this powerful heavenly spotlight kind of shone down, that they were terribly frightened. Now, this couldn't have been a small light. This couldn't have been something that was, that was minor in any way because we see that the angel has just been in the presence of the Lord. This is not something where it's just like we've got one light that, that flickers. It's not just like, well, look, I've got spotlights coming down here, and it's kind of like you can see me a little bit better. This was, this was earth-shattering. This was so dramatic and so like, ah, what's going on? That, that they were afraid. And they weren't just like, oh, you know, how you always see in the, in the movies about Jesus, everybody's British. You ever seen that? Like, oh, what is that? It wasn't like that, okay? The shepherds, first of all, weren't British. And second of all, they didn't go, let's go check that out. It was, ah, what is that? Oh, oh, oh. And, and they start to get frightened and scared. We know in the King James it says they were sore afraid. It was like, ah. Why was it that significant? Because the angel had just been in the presence of God. You remember in Exodus when they build the tabernacle in the wilderness and the cloud comes down into the Holy of Holies and fills the tabernacle. All 12 tribes were camped around the tabernacle. And Moses would go in and he would stand in the presence of God. The cloud would come down and Moses would meet with God. We don't know what that looked like, but we know that when Moses walked out of the tabernacle that his face shined so brightly that they said, you got to cover your face because we can't bear the sight. So Moses stands in the presence of God in the tabernacle. This angel has come directly from the presence of God. God is standing there in heaven and, and says to the angel, it's time to go. Jesus is going to be born. Get down there, find the shepherds, and tell them, unto you is born this day in the city of God, a Savior. And, and the angel departs right away and goes to the sky and stands before the shepherds and says, here's the good news of great joy. 
So in the middle of the darkness of the night, in the middle of the quietness of the night, now this is pierced by this light from heaven as God comes and declares the greatest news that's ever been known. That man can move from darkness to light. That man can move from death to life. And the message that the angel gives fits with the setting. They're so frightened. Look at the text. He tells them something that has a double meaning. He says, do not be afraid. Now, for obvious reasons, he tells them, do not be afraid, because they've been shocked. They've been surprised. There's, they're, they're, one minute, they're just watching their sheep, and it's quiet, and the next minute, they're surrounded by heavenly light and by a message from the angels. I, I mean, how many think they have a right to be a little bit frightened, right? So, so to say, do not be afraid, is a, is a physical and emotional reassurance. Guys, it's okay. I'm an angel from heaven. So there's that aspect of it. But I believe there's a second and deeper reason not to be afraid. He is telling them, do not be afraid, because God has come to deliver us from our hopeless spiritual condition. All men are sinners. Every single person in this room, I, the chief, am a sinner before God. We have all sinned against him. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says in Romans, the wages of that, the payment of our sin is death. Not physical death when you become 90. Eternal spiritual death is the result of sin. So God says, no, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to give you hope. But the fact that we have sin and the fact that sin has that result should fill us with fear. Now, that raises two very important questions. The first question is, if there's really no consequence for sin, and that's what the enemy wants us to believe, that's what culture promotes, that there's no consequence for sin. If there's really no consequence for sin, then why is everybody so afraid? You see, fear is based primarily on knowing that we don't have control over something or that we can't solve something. So the reason people who don't trust Christ have don't, don't have any sustained peace and ultimately fear death is because they realize in their heart and mind that they are not God, even though the enemies tried to sell that lie for years, that we're actually not God, and that sin creates a problem that we can't solve on our own. And we can deny it, or we can be cavalier about it and say, well, if I die, if there's really a God, I'll, I'll take my chances. But there will always be an unsettledness in the soul when you don't trust Christ that can't be resolved. And as we studied a prayer meeting on Thursday night in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says, look, I've tried it out. I've tested out everything. I've known every pleasure known to man, from money to relationships to, to, to popularity to the finest uh, possessions in the world to having wisdom. I've tested it all out and I found at the end of trying it all that everything is absolute vanity. Everything falls short of knowing the Lord and that's why Jesus came to be our Savior and to restore our relationship with the Lord which was broken by sin. So it would seem any person who recognizes the need for a Savior would run to Christ. If you're sitting there this morning and you've never trusted in Christ and you know deep in your heart, and I'll explain that more in a second, that you've sinned at least once in your life, 
Because the Bible says, once you've sinned once, you've broken the whole holiness of God. So if you've sinned once, you're guilty. I'm guilty tens of thousands of times over. So if we've sinned, and God says there's a solution, wouldn't it make sense that we would run to the solution? And yet, here's the second question that comes up. Why are people so afraid of Jesus Christ? And really, that's what it is. It's why there's such an increasingly strong and aggressive and violent push against Christianity in this culture. And, and I come back every time to logic. If Jesus Christ is nothing, if he's a fraud, if it really is ridiculous for us to trust in Christ, then why do people care? Why are they so intent on eliminating him and defeating those who do trust in him? There's nobody this morning fighting Buddhists and saying, you can't worship Buddha. There's nobody that's saying, that, that's, that's an offense to my freedom that you worship Buddha. And at the same time, Islam is on the rise. Muslims are being far more advanced and, and, and accepted than Christians, and they're murdering people weekly. So, so why are people so afraid of Jesus? Now, I have no doubt in my mind that it's because people who don't trust him fear what it means that he is really Emmanuel. They fear that he is really God with us. Because if that baby is God with us, then our sin is going to be confronted. And there's going to be fear over the guilt of that sin. And there's going to be fear over not being able to save ourselves. And there's going to be fear over not being in control of our spiritual destiny. Fear of not being in control at all. Fear of having to repent. Fear of having to renounce self. Fear of having to yield. The ultimate fear is that we will have to change. And it's counterintuitive to run from the answer for our fear. If you're fearful, you don't run toward the problem, you run away from the problem. You try to find an answer. So if we're fearful of what our sin is going to do to us, wouldn't it be intuitive and logical to run to the one who says I'm the answer? And yet people don't do that. They get more opposed and more uh, resistant and, and they go away from it. And yet here's the love of God. And the love of God says perfect love casts out all fear. There's no other way to describe Jesus Christ than as the perfect expression of God's love. Because we didn't ask for it. We were in sin. We were condemned. There was no hope. And God could say in his justice, sorry, I gave you every opportunity. Instead, he sends Christ and that perfect love that's shown casts out all the fear that we have of what sin will do to us. And if people would just accept Jesus Christ instead of resisting him, they would know the salvation and the peace that the angel spoke about. Simple illustration of this is when a young child needs to cross a busy street, what does the parent do? The parent doesn't say, hey, go dodge cars. Go to it. Run fast. Make sure you watch out for that pickup because it doesn't see you, so run a little faster. 
What does a parent do? They reach out their hand and they grab that child and that child looks up. Oh, good. I got somebody bigger than me. And the child is led by the parent across the street and the parent's watching out for danger and the parent is avoiding death by being alert and attentive and guiding them until they're safe. Not only so they'll be safe, but so they won't have fear That fear has to be overcome so that you can move toward safety. Now, far more profoundly, the Lord has reached out to us through Christ. And he says, I will offer you eternal security and eternal salvation if you will trust me. So what does the angel say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Look at the next line. Because I'm bringing you good news of great joy. See, good news doesn't always produce great joy, right? Sometimes good news just brings you relief. Sometimes good news just stops your worries or, or, or it, it brings some measure of comfort or, or satisfaction. But, but this is not good news that just, whew, okay, we're okay. This is good news that brings great joy. Why? Because it's an eternal answer for all people that God is willing to be the Savior of anyone who trusts in Him. Now, the fact that He's come to be the Savior means that two things are true. We're being very logical this morning, okay? This is, this is a defense of the faith. The fact that He's come to be the Savior means two things are true. First of all, every person needs a Savior. Every person needs a Savior. If we didn't, Jesus Christ came in vain. There's no point for him to be here. He's wasting his time if we can save ourselves. But we can't, so he came. And why is salvation necessary? Salvation is necessary because of sin and because of evil. And there is no way that we can watch the news of just the last week and not be absolutely sure that sin and evil do exist. Just read a newspaper. Just go online and look at any news source. Four Christian children beheaded in Iraq for refusing to announce Jesus Christ. Even as they're holding the knife, they're saying, there's no way we're announcing Jehovah. A woman stabbing her eight kids, ages five months to 15-year-old in Australia, a coffee shop being taken under siege by a gunman who killed two people. A South Carolina woman who killed her 14-month-old grandson by putting oxycodone in a sippy cup. A hundred-plus children massacred in Pakistan. Two police officers shot in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood in Brooklyn last night. And ISIS continuing to crucify Christians, including children, turning Christian churches into Iraq and Syria into dungeons and torture chambers and selling Christian artifacts on the black market because their goal is to wipe out Christianity. You tell me there's no evil in the world, I'll tell you, read a newspaper. Of course there's evil in the world. How can anybody think that evil doesn't exist? And if evil does exist, and none of us can possibly stand up this morning and say, I'm perfect, I have never ever done anything wrong, I am spotless, and I have no guilt. If, if none of us can say that, and evil does exist, then that means that we're all infected with evil. 
Romans 5 says that death has spread to all mankind because all have sinned. Now, if that premise is true, if evil exists and we all have it, then there are only three possible options. Option number one is that we're condemned forever. We need a savior and there isn't one and we have no hope. That's option one. Option two is that we can save ourselves. But Romans 3 says there's no one who's righteous on their own. There's no one who even seeks God. And mankind, as has been proven this week, is obviously very lousy at being perfectly holy. So option one, we need salvation. There's not a savior. We have nothing. Option two, we can save ourselves, but I think we can all agree there's no way that's going to happen. So option three is we need a savior and God provides one. God sends Jesus Christ and says, here's a savior. Now to me, option one and three are the only realistic options because looking at option two, if we can save ourselves, how do we know what's good enough? And how do we even know what good is? There has to be some standard of perfection. So who would it be if it's not God? And if there is a holy God, then we're accountable to him. And if he's going to accept our quasi-goodness, then he is not a holy God. If God will take second best, if the holy, perfect God will say, Hey, Rhodes, it's okay. Just do your best. Try really hard. Do a couple good things. Be nice to people and don't kill anybody. And, and I, the holy, perfect God, will let you into heaven. That, he, that makes him not God. The only thing a holy, perfect God can accept is what? Holy perfection. And none of us has it. So, option two, not an option. That means the only options are option one and option three. Either we have no hope, at which point we're a sorry lot, aren't we? Then life is cruel and stupid and pointless. We've been put here to live our 70, 80 plus years and then to die and then nothing. Or we get tormented forever. Or Jesus comes. It's historically proven, even secularists say, there was a man named Jesus. Now, some would say, well, what he claimed and what he did is, is wild and it, and it can't be true. But, but if it is true, they've got to answer to him for who he is. And people can dismiss his resurrection, but, but I would say, as I say every year at Easter, where's the body? If Jesus is dead, produce the body. Because that would be the greatest historical, archaeological find of all time. And it would shut up Christians forever. You would close every evangelical church if you can produce the, the dead body of Jesus Christ this morning. We would just shut down because our faith is worthless. But the fact that nobody can and you can't disprove the resurrection means that option three is the only option that God must have intervened, that God must have sent his son, that God must have provided a savior, Emmanuel, God with us. God is willing to show us his mercy. God is willing to forgive us of our sin. God is willing to redeem us forever. And only his son is the one who can transfer us from darkness to light.
we sang it. In thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. It makes total sense that God is the only one who can satisfy his own holiness. So knowing that we're completely incapable of being holy and having proven it over thousands of years in the Old Testament that man can't be righteous, Jesus comes. Unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Joseph, his name's to be Emmanuel. There's no other name. You need to understand what's going on. This is God in flesh. That, that baby is no ordinary baby. That child is, is the son of God, and he's come here to save. Why? Because every single person needs salvation. There's not one person in this room this morning who needs to remain in spiritual darkness. Listen now, I'm done. There's not one person who needs to remain in spiritual darkness. If you've been living, believing the lie that you don't need Jesus Christ because you don't need to be saved or you can save yourself, I pray that the message of the gospel has been crystal clear to you this morning from the words of the kids in the play to this study of the angel's message. Whatever you've believed, however you've lived, whatever you've done, Jesus Christ came to offer you deliverance from that sin. I'm a sinner as much as you. I'm not standing up here saying, well, I'm better than you and I've never sinned and look at me and, and you're worth... Listen, I'm a sinner as much as you. I'm condemned as much as you without Jesus Christ. I deserve hell as much as you. But at some point in my life, 1974, I confessed that sin and gave my life to Christ. And if I hadn't, I would still be in spiritual darkness. But I can tell you for a fact this morning that because I did that, that that light that he brought has cut through the darkness of my sin and it has eradicated it because that's what Christ has done. And I want to tell you this morning, I want to tell you, and other people around you can tell you too, if you're in darkness, you don't have to live in darkness. You can trust Jesus Christ. And in the moment you do that, in the moment you say, God, I confess my sin, I trust in Christ as my Savior, God eternally transfers you from death to life. He pulls you from darkness to light forever. And nothing can steal that from you. And I want to tell you this morning, if that's something you need to do, or you want to ask questions, or you want to find out more, you came here and you didn't know what to expect. Maybe you're a hostile this morning. Maybe you're here because your kids are. I don't know. I don't know all of you, but I'm telling you, if that makes sense to you, and God's drawing your heart, I want to talk to you after the service. Don't you leave this building without talking to me or somebody else saying, I want to know more. Tell me more. And if that person can't fully explain it, they'll find somebody who can and they'll stay with you, and we'll pray with you, and we'll transfer you. God will transfer you from death to life. What a Christmas present. To know when you lay your head down on the pillow tonight, I don't have to be stuck in sin. I don't have to go to hell because Emmanuel has come. God is with us, and God wants to save us. Let's praise the Lord for that. Now, Let's conclude. If you have trusted Christ, 
If you're like me and you can point to the day or point to a time where I, I turned from sin, I trusted Christ, then are you still spending time walking in darkness? That's a very serious question. Sin so easily besets us because we allow it to continue to influence us. Christ did not come so we could receive salvation and then go back to living the way we used to. There is a change that is required, and he came as Emmanuel so we would be free from sin forever. Listen, we just clapped and we're saying, come on, if you don't know Christ, you need to receive him today. You need to know the difference. You need to know what it's like to be forgiven. Well, listen, those of us that are forgiven need to live like we're forgiven. We need to stop playing around and monkeying around with sin and say, well, I'll just have a little bit of this and a little bit of the world and I'll just, I'll continue to be part of that because I like it. No, that's not why Christ came. Christ came to free us from sin forever. So I want to challenge you this morning believer, and I want to challenge myself that we need to put off sin once and for all. We need to walk in the light as he has made us children of the light. We need to quit playing with the darkness, and we need to live in the security of God's grace. Don't be afraid of living that way. The enemy wants to lie and say, well, I can't do that. It's going to cost you so what? What's it going to cost you? A friendship? A reputation is a fun person? Come on. This is eternity we're talking about. Walk as children of the light.